and welcome to a special edition of the McGregor Podcast. I'm Mark Bricker, your host for this special Hot Topics podcast series. Recently on a Wednesday night, as part of our Journey Together ministry, we hosted a Hot Topic night with Pastor Russell Howard leading. The topic, thinking biblically about persevering in faith. And what's the deal with ex-Christians? We've divided Pastor Russell's teaching into two sections, two separate podcasts. And both of these sections are packed with content. So get your Bibles out and have something to take notes with. And join me as we now listen together to part one of Thinking Biblically About Persevering in Faith. I did not learn the term from my son, who as as part of his um, years as an army officer participated in a great many briefings, but I, subs- I, I shared the term with my son and he said, oh yeah, dad, I could have told you about that a long time ago. The term is bluff. Putting the bottom line up front. We have a tendency to want to make a case brick by brick by brick by brick, and treat the conclusion like it's a punchline that we've built to. And that's valid. The entire stand-up comedy industry would not exist if there weren't something to be said for set it up, 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 pay it off. And that's not a bad way to do things. Tonight, I'm going to do things backward from that. I'm going to go ahead and put the bottom line right up front. This is, this is what I pray you will leave with. We live in a day that purports to have a lot of ex-Christians. This Christian singer who had some albums and was oh so wonderful now is deconstructing. That's the current term. This Christian author who wrote a book or two or three is now got his YouTube channel or his um, social media presence where he's now making the rounds as one who is deconstructing his former faith. The um, internet is well peppered with those who purport to be former Christians. They've outgrown it. They've left it behind by their own descriptions. So I want to go ahead and lead with this. There are no ex-Christians, period. There is no such thing as a former Christian. However, there are many false converts And I'm not accusing them of conscious deceit. A counterfeit $20 bill may not know that it's counterfeit. But whether consciously deceived or, or, pardon me, whether, whether a conscious hypocrite during their time as a supposed Christian or whether someone who just did not come to authentic faith in Christ The term false convert covers that. There are many false converts who did not stay 
with their false Christianity. A couple of questions that are going to come up, as Mark said, that I'll go ahead and deal with right here at the outset. I have known people whose Christian testimony was rock solid, but who came to be victims of mental illness, specifically dementia. And the dementia caused them to change in such fundamental ways in terms of how they expressed themselves that loved ones were left reeling I would remind you, and I am no expert, the brain is a physical organ, like the knee, or the liver, or the gut, the intestine. When the brain becomes biologically ill, it has symptoms of that illness. Some of you who have been caregivers on the dementia journey, if I had more time, I would sit down right now and let you explain. Loving someone through dementia when that person's love for Jesus doesn't seem to express itself in as confidence-building ways as it once did. When I talk about a false convert who doesn't stay with their false Christianity, I am not talking about a victim of dementia who loses their grasp of things they have always known. Okay? The second question that's going to come up is, well, what about someone you know? Many of you will know people who once professed faith in Christ and now their, their manner of life sure seems to suggest, I am not equipped to diagnose an individual case. And I'm blessed that that is not my, that is so far above my pay grade, it's not even funny. What about someone who struggles with persistent sin? <laughs> who in the room struggles with persistent sin? Yeah, if you say you don't, your persistent sin is lying. <laughs> it's someone who doesn't struggle that frightens me. So those are a few of the questions, and if you have a refined version of one of those, terrific. I look forward to, to interacting with Brother Mark when we record the stuff. There's just no such thing as a false convert. Jesus, Jesus taught this truth of of apparent, that is to appearance, conversion, but it doesn't stick in the parable of the sower and the seed. Lots and lots of places to go in the scripture tonight. Matthew 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered around him. I'm at Matthew 13, verses one through nine. Um, so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. 
And as he sowed, and this method is, is what's called broadcast sowing. This is not digging careful little holes and putting seeds every 10 inches. This is walking into a field and scattering seed. As he, uh, as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. The Lord is gracious to us in that this parable benefits from an extraordinarily expert commentary that tells us a bit more of what the Lord is saying. That extraordinarily expert commentary is Jesus. In the same chapter, verses 18 through 23, Jesus explains. Hear then the parable of the sower. Now he's with his disciples. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That's what's sown along the path. It's, 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 utterly hard, it's utterly, visibly hard soil. And the seed is rejected. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. That fourth category is the only genuine conversion in view. The other categories, the rocky soil, zero, pardon me, the zero penetration path is satanically aided indifference. They have eyes, but they do not see, ears, but they do not hear. Those that fall on the thin layer of soil on top of rock underneath such that no root ever is formed, they pop up, but the moment there's any pushback in the form of tribulation or persecution, the moment, and Jesus told us that in this world, we will, every believer is going to face that. But the second category of seed faces that and says, I ain't doing this anymore. There is no conversion. There's a pop-up pseudo-response to the gospel, but there's no conversion. And the third, again, they, they, they pop up. I grew up in a very, very small town in northeast Florida. 
If you're in Florida, as far north as I grew up, you're in South Georgia. The, the cultural, and if you're a North Floridian, you'll get this. The cultural state line is I-10. If you're north of I-10 in the eastern part of Florida, you're a Georgian. You are a southerner. Uh, so I grew up in that small town south. In Callahan, Florida, when I was growing up, if you owned a small business, you were either a Baptist, a Methodist, or bankrupt. <laughs> because anybody that wasn't a part of the two churches, one of the two churches in town, something was just culturally wrong with you. And, and that cultural small-town South churchianity produced folks whose faith would not withstand tribulation or persecution, whose faith would not withstand um, hanging in there even if their faith contradicted their self-interest in some cases. So, in the second and third case, they look like Christians for a season. They look like Christians for a season. There's more scriptures about that we'll look at in a few minutes. I pause here to remind you, real salvation is forever. Real salvation is forever. I know that McGregor is, and this is a great blessing. I am so blessed by the multitude of uh, just about every denominational stream that exists has has streamed into McGregor Baptist, and I'm glad. Some of you are from traditions that would not agree with what I've put there on the board as the top line. However, you have come to a church that holds to, to quote our church's confession of faith, all True believers endure to the end. We believe that at McGregor. Um, and if that is still difficult for you, um, perhaps we can help. Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And I remind you again, don't, don't see the E word and freak out as though it's a bad word. It means people who are saved. Who shall lay any charge against people who are saved? It is God who 
justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now remember, those false converts encounter these things and they're gone. But here shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded. And before I get to this next sentence, I would remind you that everything that is not the living God is a created thing. So when he says any created thing in a minute, he means anything in the universe that is not God himself. I read on. I am persuaded, I am sure, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, that is, believers, from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, if you want to pretend that's hard to understand, I don't think it is. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. Again, writing to believers. In him you also, believers, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Brother Russell, I still mess up. Do you understand that's the point? Man, if keeping your salvation's up to you, you're sunk and I'm sunk worse. 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're looking a lot at 2 Corinthians these days. Sure if I can navigate my own Bible. There it is. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Notice, as we have found repeatedly in our study of 2 Corinthians, this is not a commandment. This is not God the Holy Spirit saying, remember, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be a new creature. Now, that's, that's true in terms of how we conduct and express ourselves. But you have, when you passed from darkness to light, you were remade into something you previously were not. You did not merely make a decision that you can unmake, like picking curtains or wallpaper. You were transformed by a supernatural act of God into a new creature. If that hasn't happened, you're not born again. And once that happens, it doesn't unhappen. 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. 
And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Real salvation is always forever. That being said, the New Testament gives multiple examples of false converts who didn't last. These are three very sad stories. The first one, perhaps familiar to most of us, is Judas. No one had more opportunity. No one was exposed to more truth. Literally, walking around with Jesus for years. Judas sold out the Savior at the end because the Savior was not fulfilling Judas's political aspirations. That's a short explanation. What, what he sold was access to where Jesus went to be quiet during that last week in Jerusalem when the city was swollen with Passover pilgrims. Since the resurrection of Lazarus, the Jerusalem council had determined among themselves that whatever else, they wanted Jesus dead. They fully, finally, and resolutely reached that conclusion at the resurrection of Lazarus. That was the final tipping point. It's an insane response. That, by the way, it illustrates a point. Lostness is not intellectual. I say it all the time. The scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day did not say, what are we going to do about Jesus? He's fooled everybody into believing he can raise the dead. We need to unmask him. No. They knew more than you do about the history of Christ's ministry on earth because they had contemporaneous exposure to it. We have the summary God has left us in the Gospels. The resurrection of Lazarus happened. And their sane response would have been, there's one walking among us making messianic claims who has now really proven those claims by being most overtly and publicly the master over death. Bring him in here and let's ask him what he wants from us. That would have been a sane response. Their insane response was, we want him dead. So they, they, they found in Judas a disloyal disciple. They paid him. He led them on that late Thursday night to the Garden of Gethsemane. He got remorseful soon after, and by dawn the next morning, had hung himself. Peter, in describing the need for a replacement 12th apostle, says this in Acts 1, 125. We, we need someone, verse 25, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Now, it's polite language, but it is, that is not language Peter would use to describe heaven. Peter is using polite language to, we, we can know in 
no uncertain terms, Judas went to hell. He followed Jesus, but he never followed Jesus. Second example, perhaps a little less familiar. Ah, the buttons. Um, Acts 9. This is the story of Simon the magician, who is, um, well, there was a magician. There was a man named Simon. I'll, I'll start reading. Acts 8, beginning in verse 9. Who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. He's, a, he's, a, he's some combination of a cult practitioner and stage magic guy. We have no idea what specifically he was into. Whether, whether purely occultic or purely David Copperfield or some combination of the two. But he had quite the following. And that following was his because he demonstrated supernatural power and the crowd loved it. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man's the power of God that's called great. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, this is uh, Philip the deacon from the church at Jerusalem who is now evangelizing in Samaria. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. A, a revival begins to break out in Samaria. Even Simon, this magician himself, believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Well, goodness, that's what you'd look for. Professed belief. He followed it up with baptism. He continued. And then when he saw the power of God move, his response to that was, wow, that's impressive. What would it cost me to buy that magic trick? If you know what one is, you'll know what I mean. The first time I became aware of what I can do with a stripper deck, if you don't know what a stripper or stripped deck is, you've not been around a lot of card cheating or a lot of card magic. It's a, it's a deck that's had something done to it that makes it possible to do some seemingly impossible things with that deck of cards. I was aware of stripper decks before I ever bought one. And then I stumbled into a magic shop one day and said, I think I'm asking by the right name. I want a stripper deck. And the guy said at that time, that'll be, I don't know, eight bucks. I, I, there was a thing that gave me magic powers. I can, I can cut to the four aces. I can absolutely find any card that, that I let you freely select without a great deal of very advanced skill. It's a magic trick one can buy or a prop. That's what Simon asked for regarding the power of God. Well, the apostle Peter saw straight to his heart and made this statement. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Here it is. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, 
for your heart is not right with God, repent. And later Simon basically says, boy, I hope you'll repent for me. The call to repentance bounced off him like rain off a tin roof. When the apostle Peter says you're not saved, odds are he's got it right. Jesus already told us about those plants that sprout up. Simon went through the motions. If you're saved by doing the right churchy stuff, Simon the magician is saved. If conversion is a heart change fueled by repentance and faith, in the power of the Holy Spirit to convert a soul, Simon's false convert. And then there's Demas. Demas is a long-time associate of the Apostle Paul. It's fascinating, when Paul is closing Colossians, he closes with a catalog of his associates. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. I'm in Colossians starting in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Onesimus, who is the um, subject matter of the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon is a sticky note attached to the book of Colossians. The two absolutely travel together. Onesimus is in both. Our faithful and beloved brother who's one of you, they'll tell you everything that has taken place. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who's called Justice, not Jesus the Messiah, obviously. The name was not all that uncommon. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Right away, we see, huh, Demas? Great news. You belong on this list. When Paul is mentioning those who are with him, you're there. But in terms of fruit, already can we not see a bit of a contrast with Demas compared to some of the others? Demas, period. He's hanging around. He's hanging with some outstanding people. He shows up again in the closing to Philemon, unsurprisingly, since Philemon is traveling with Colossians. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Colossians, Philemon are written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Just a few years later, he is in, there's a second Roman imprisonment out of which is written 2 Timothy, the last book Paul would ever write. And in the closing of 2 Timothy, it's some of the most melancholy words in the New Testament. 
Paul, having written largely his own epitaph, pleased to his young disciple Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'll start in verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If one loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's not accidental that we have such crystal clear language. He has departed having loved this world. Demas was never born again. He's that third category when the, per, when the per, uh, pardon me, second category, when the persecutions and pressures of the world got to him. Or no, pardon me, he is the third category. His love of something in the world has superseded. He's Paul's Judas. Thank you for listening to this special McGregor podcast, Thinking Biblically About Persevering in Faith, Part 1. And by the way, there is more to come. So don't forget to listen to part two of this Hot Topics series on persevering in faith, which will be coming out very shortly.